Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Today, we're actually going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 3, or you can just follow along. As usual, I'm only going to share about half of what we're studying today. Why? Because we can't get through it all in 30, 40 minutes. So do our best to go through Mark chapter 3, half of it in about 30 minutes. So let's go ahead and pray as we open the Word of God together. Father, we do thank you today for your word, and I do pray, God, that everybody that joins us today would be blessed and strengthened. May your word breathe life into us. May your Holy Spirit help us to live out what your word teaches. God, we want to be more like Jesus, and so when we read the gospel of Mark today, I pray that we would see Jesus, we would be drawn to Jesus, we would want to be like Jesus, and because of your spirit living in us, we would, in fact, take that step to be more more and more like him. And we thank you, Father, that our hearts have been restored by your grace and that today, Lord, you're encouraging us to continue to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ Jesus. So bless all of my friends and use this broadcast for your glory, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, obviously, we're on a journey through the book of Mark. Let me just go ahead and remind you what we actually looked at in Mark chapter 2. We looked at the story where Jesus had healed a paralytic, and you remember that his friends brought him to the Jesus conference, which was probably in Peter's house. They brought him on a stretcher because he was paralyzed. They couldn't get in because the crowd was so big, so they got up on the roof and they they made a hole in the roof and they lowered him down. Jesus not only forgave his sins, but he healed the man. And everybody was amazed. They were amazed because of the miracle power of Jesus Christ. And we're amazed because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What we didn't study in Mark chapter 2 was the calling of Levi, or otherwise known as Matthew. And that really is a profound and powerful story. Wish we could have gone through that. We would have to really slow down this broadcast in order to do so. It's worthy of doing, but I just have decided we're just going to keep going through the chapter. Also, after we read about the calling of Matthew or Levi, we read about how Jesus has a confrontation with the religious leaders, and it happens to be over the issue of Sabbath. Now, that's the first of two that we're going to read about in just two chapters, because what we're going to land on today in the first 12, 13 verses has to do with Jesus's confrontation with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, about the issue of the Sabbath. So we're going to get into that a little bit today. We would have done that in Mark 2, but we'll pick up the story here. Mark chapter 3 in verse 1, I will read the first 12 verses, and that's probably as far as we're going to get. So here's what it says. It says, He, Jesus, entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians 
against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, from Jerusalem, and from Edomia. I don't know how to say that, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, and great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, and with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God! And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. So clearly we have two separate stories, so to speak. We've got the story about Jesus healing the man with a withered hand in the synagogue, the confrontation that he has there with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. But also we have the story where Jesus is going to withdraw, get into a boat, and go to another region. All of these people come to see him because they want to be healed by him, and people who are afflicted with demonic spirits clearly want to be delivered. And so we have two somewhat separate stories, but they still just follow the narrative of the gospel here. And Mark, as you know, moves very quickly. And sometimes scholars would say that he doesn't move in a chronological order. If you read the other synoptic gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are synoptic. John is not a synoptic gospel, but it's one of the four gospel accounts. When you read the other gospel accounts, sometimes the chronology or the order of the stories are not necessarily the same. And so what we're looking at here is Mark just tends to arrange the stories as he saw them, as he understood them. And I think sometimes it could be said that Mark arranged the stories as he dealt with specific issues. Now, I can't prove that, but it just seems to me that he has five conflict stories with religious leaders. And this is actually the last of the fifth in the two chapters that we've just read. And so we have all of this going on. Let me just go ahead and in a in somewhat verse-by-verse fashion, let's look at what is happening here. And then I just want to make some specific points or things that I think are important that we can extrapolate from the text that I think hopefully will help us because ultimately we want to understand the Bible. We know who wrote it, who we wrote it to, this narrative that was going out during that time, the first century and beyond. And we also want to be able to extrapolate principles, understand things that are important for us, that remain true for us today. History always remains true. God's Word always remains true. But what are the things that we can glean that are going to touch us, that need to help us, and really will refine who we are in today's world? And we look here in verse 1. It says, he entered again into the synagogue. Now, I'm sure many of you know what a synagogue is, but it was simply a place of worship, a place of gathering, an established place of gathering for the Jewish people practicing Judaism. Jesus would go into the synagogue. In fact, when you look in the book of Acts, one of the things the apostle Paul would do is he would first go to the synagogue before we'd ever go to the Gentiles. And so the synagogue was an assembly of worship, and Jesus would continually go to the synagogue, and he would minister, and things like this would happen. But obviously, the Jewish leaders would gather there, and they they would be there at times, and so there would be conflict because they were looking to accuse Jesus. And I'll reference that here in just a minute. But what we don't have in the book of Mark is the detail for the geographic location. It just says he entered again into the synagogue, and then it says that there was a man there with a withered hand. I don't know the condition of the withered hand. There are a lot of different 
um, suspicions, suggestions, but we just know that he was clearly disabled. And so we'll just sort of leave it at that. But we, we have a story here with a man who has um, a withered hand. Everybody knows it. Everybody can see it. So it's clearly a, clearly a visible disability. And Mark notes in verse 2 that they, the religious leaders, and later identified as the Pharisees, were watching Jesus. And they were watching him for a specific reason. In fact, it says they were watching to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Because they've already predecided that if Jesus were to do something like this, that it would break the Sabbath and therefore give them the right to accuse Jesus before the Sanhedrin. This would be a legal accusation. They're, they're not looking for Jesus to do just a bad thing. They're looking to, for Jesus to do something bad enough for them to accuse him before the Sanhedrin, and therefore Jesus could be condemned. And ultimately, that is what happens to Jesus at a later time. But you can see right here, we're in chapter 3, and they're clearly looking to accuse him, condemn him, remove him. That's what is in their hearts. That's what they're looking for. Now, this brings in the conflict of the Sabbath, because it is the Sabbath. There is a man with a withered hand, and it's important for us to know what they believed about the Sabbath. Now, if you read the Old Testament and the verses that reference the Sabbath, what you're going to find is it clearly says, do no work on the Sabbath. Now, what they believe as a result of the Mishnah, which is the oral law, I actually have a copy here in my office of the Mishnah, there's over 35 different stipulations in the oral law that help, uh, help them to understand what work actually means. And I believe that there are times in the Old Testament law where something is fairly ambiguous and it's clear enough. Do no work on the Sabbath means do no work. There wasn't really, there was, it wasn't meant to have all of these various inter interpretations. God was pretty clear and that meant work. And so what happened is over a period of time, they developed oral law or tradition. It's referenced as both different terms. You'll see uh, oral law, you'll see tradition the traditions of the fathers, when you read that term, we're, we're looking at the Mishnah, they developed 35, I think it's actually 38 or 39, but at least 35 different rules to further define what work actually meant. And so you can understand the tension that they had. I mean, we have to respect that. Anytime anybody would do something on the Sabbath, they would be wondering if that was going to break the rules. And so instead of just do no work on the Sabbath, they had to clarify that. They had to get it into minute detail of how far was too far. But there also is a stipulation for the violation in the Mishnah. And that was that if, if it was a life or death situation, it actually states in the Mishnah that you could uh, violate the Sabbath or you could break the Sabbath, so to speak. It wouldn't be, that's not necessarily the way it was said, but you could override the Sabbath or the rules of the Sabbath in order to save a life. And really, Jesus is going to appeal to them and that he sees healing someone would be, in a sense, bringing saving life. And they don't see it that way. And so I think it's fairly interesting that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are looking and watching to see what Jesus will do. Think about that for a moment. They're not even, they've already bypassed, could he do it? I mean, they've already bypassed the fact that he has healing power, miracle working power. They're just wondering, would he do it? And if he would do it, then it's going to break 
the law. And if he breaks the law, then he's going to have an accusation against him, which would bring him to destruction. So they're not open to learning from Jesus at all. They're not trying to learn anything from him. They're not interested in that. They're trying to accuse him. They're trying to remove him. They're trying to bring legal accusation against him. And I'll reference that here in just a little bit. So Jesus here in verse four, or sorry, in verse three, he says to the man, come up and come forward. I mean, think about that for a moment. Come up and come forward. He says this right in front of those who are watching him, right in front of those who are trying to accuse him. He has the man come forward. Maybe that was embarrassing for the man. I don't know. It might have been. It certainly could have been. I bet you it was really tense in the room. I bet you people were feeling all kinds of tension because Jesus was confronting a religious spirit, a religious mindset. He was not merely, he wasn't confronting the law. Jesus believed in the law. Jesus held the law. Jesus never uh, broke the law. He was actually perfect and righteous in all of his ways, far beyond anybody uh, could, I mean, nobody could follow the law. Nobody could actually adhere to the law and it's perfect perfectness and its perfect righteous standard. Only Jesus did that. And so Jesus has this guy come forward. I can imagine it's really tense. And he asks this question in verse four, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? Now think about that for a moment. They're plotting to kill Jesus and Jesus is preparing to heal the man. Think about that. Jesus is preparing to heal a man they're plotting to kill Jesus. And Jesus asked this provocative question, and he knows that the only way that they can override the Sabbath, if it's to save life. And so he asked them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill? And you know what it says? It says they kept silent. They're not going to debate Jesus over this one. They're not going to say anything. And in fact, they don't say anything. Of course they don't say anything. What are they going to say? What are you going to say? It's a religious mindset. Here we read also in verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And here we read about what's called righteous anger, righteous indignation. Jesus was clearly angry at the Pharisees because they had such a hard heart, they could no longer see the man, they could no longer see his, the that he was crippled and care about him. They couldn't see the miracle working power of Jesus. They couldn't see that he was clearly the Messiah. They had no compassion. They were numb. They were just looking for the rule breaker. And Jesus was angry at the hardness of their heart because they had lost the intent of the law. Here we are trying to follow the law, these men, but they're not remembering the intent of the law. Isn't that interesting? And that really is what can happen to us in a religious mindset if we're not careful. And so Jesus is looking around, he's grieved, and he's angry, and he's, he does this very thing. He says, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. I want you to think about that for a minute. Here we have, Jesus could just say, be healed. He's actually done that before. He does that at a later time. But he tells the man to come forward. He tells the man to stretch out his hand. And so there's this participation that the man has in his own healing. Now, you can't heal yourself, and this man can't heal himself. But I'm just pointing out how Jesus commands the man to do two things. The man does both of those things, and Jesus heals him. And I see this as a principle. I actually see this as a principle of faith, where Jesus is constantly inviting us in to participate with him and have faith in him. 
And it is we are not saved just by our faith or by our our by our by our faith, so to speak, or healed by our faith, but our faith is important. Our faith is the response to the command of Jesus. And this is something that we see throughout the gospels. In fact, we are saved by grace through faith. He gives us grace, he gives us faith, and we place our faith in what he has done. He gives us that ability to do that. And so I think it's important that when we read scriptures like this and we see where Jesus commands somebody to do something and they do it, that we identify that. We acknowledge that Jesus gave them a command first and then he responded. So he initiates, we respond, he does something. This is usually how it happens, but there is sovereignty to God. Obviously, God can do what he wants. God does do what he wants. And so there are times where he does something, but I see principles of faith at work all over the scriptures. And I think sometimes people have this aversion to acknowledge that that we participate in the working of the Lord. And I don't think there's that does a service to the scripture because again and again and again, what we're reading is we see how Jesus invites us in to believe. We see how Jesus invites us in to respond. And so I just simply want to acknowledge how we work with Jesus to see things happen in the world. And I think it's really, really powerful. Now look here in verse six, the Pharisees went out immediately and began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Now the Herodians were friends um, they were friends and backers of the Herodian family. They were a minor political party favoring the, the family there, the continuation of the dynasty of Herod. And normally there were uh, these two Pharisees and Herodians were enemies. And yet here they find common ground in accusing and destroying the son of God. I think that's crazy, but that's exactly what is happening. And once again, that's that religious mindset at work. Jesus withdrew, verse 7, to the sea with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed and also from Judea, from Jerusalem and Edomia and beyond the Jordan, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard all that he was doing and came to him. This is really powerful because it shows that the fame and the renown of Jesus was spreading throughout communities far and wide. There's no internet, there's no email, there's no news, there's no social media. And so word of mouth is the way these things are spreading and they're spreading fast. Jesus is getting to be known. And so what we have here after this man is healed, he stretches forth his hand, he's healed. The religious leaders, they were confronted in their perspective, they were confronted in their misunderstandings, and that actually isn't what was spreading as much as the healing power of Jesus. And so all these people were seeking to find Jesus, and they do. They find Jesus, and it says that they're just trying to get close to him. And the closer some get to him, it says those who were demon-possessed, right here in verse 10 and 11, whenever unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. This is really what happens when demonic spirits encounter the Son of God, the power of the Son of God. We still see this stuff today, but this is what we clearly see from the Gospels, is that even when people with demons got close to them, they'd fall down, and, and really they're encountering the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is really powerful. Jesus' fame is spreading far and wide, and I think it's obviously what we want to continue in our day today. Now, I just want to bring up a few things from verses 1 through 12, things that I think stick out to me, things that I think we can learn from, glean from, that are important for us. The first one is this, religious mindsets always see the wrong thing. 
Now, you look at verse 2. I'll read it again. We've all, I've already said some of these things, but I just want to reiterate it just for us. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. They were watching him in order to see what he would do. They're already missing the compassion for the man. They're missing the awe of God and that Jesus is performing miracles. Maybe you remember what I said yesterday. None of these people had seen miracles. They'd heard about miracles the time of Elisha. We're talking many years ago, okay? They've heard stories from ancestors that were passed down about the miracle-working power of God through the Holy Spirit and the prophet Elijah and Elisha. They've heard about the miracles of God. They understand that these types of things happen because God is at work. Certainly there are counterfeits, there are magicians, there are people that practice the occult. Yeah, but they nobody was doing anything like this. There's no historical documents to reference anything like this. And so they've passed beyond, could he do it? And they've moved on to, would he do it? Because they have a specific intent in mind. They want to accuse him. So they're no longer witnessing the miracle power of God. They're no longer thinking about, could this be God? They just want to accuse and remove Jesus. They question everything and everyone but themselves, which clearly denotes that they've accepted they have a superior knowledge. Why do I bring this up? Because we too can have religious mindsets. The Pharisees did not start out badly. Some believe that it was out of the Babylonian captivity that there were a group of Jews that said, we want to live according to the law, and that's what we're going to do. So Pharisee means separate ones, those who've been separate, set apart for God. So this starts, this movement starts as a movement of purity. It starts as a movement in order to not worship false gods. And so you start out well, but then you become this elitist group of people who interpret through a superior knowledge Everything is the way that we think that it is. And so they develop an oral law, the Mishnah, and they put that into stone just like the law itself. And so they hold that in highest regard and they burden everyone else with things that they themselves cannot do. And so what happens is their mindset becomes God in a sense. It's the way they think. It's the way they interpret the law. It's not the law itself anymore. It's the way they interpret the law. Why, why can I say that as strong as I am? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is standing right in front of them. And not only can they not see him or receive him or follow him, but they can't identify the true intent of the law being manifested right in front of their very faces. When you say that you believe in God's holy word and his word is being manifested right in front of you and you're just trying to see whether or not a rule is being broken because our minds have become God's, you know that a religious mindset has taken over. What we want is we want to not merely adhere to the law, we want the law to be manifested in our lives. And what they had lost in their religious mindset was the intention of God in the law. Why did God give us this law? Why did God give us the Sabbath? Why did God give us these rules, so to speak? They were for us. They were to show His holiness. They were to help us understand our design. God made us a certain way, and our foolishness and our sinfulness walks away and falls astray. And so here we have the the beauty of the law of God, which is beautiful, which is righteous, which is right. And by the way, if you ever hear anybody put down the law, 
If you ever hear any pastor, preacher, teacher, Christian put down the Old Testament, the law, that is just such a horrible thing. It's such a horrible thing because the New Covenant, the New Testament is built on the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. There is no way for us to even understand the New Covenant and the New Testament without the Old Covenant. There's just no way for us to get it. And so we have to understand the law. We have to see the beauty of the law, not the misinterpretations. That's what Jesus was confronting. He was confronting a religious mindset that had gotten things wrong. And I warn all of us that we too can easily get things wrong if we become in our own minds the superior knowledge, that it's our interpretation. Now, I want all of us to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, I believe it is, where we always study to see that these things are so. I don't want anybody just to only believe what I'm saying. No, I want people to study the Bible for themselves. I want people to dig into the richness and the depth of God's Word, and we will continually grow, and we will continually understand the unfolding revelation of what is already written. That's why this comment in Scripture, Jesus says it to the enemy, it is written. What is written? Well, we need to know what is written, and we want to not veer off of what is written, and a religious mindset can get into the way. A religious mindset is destructive, and it's also dangerous, and we want to be very careful. When we come to God's Word, Old Testament and New Testament, we want to have humble hearts. We want to study to show ourselves approved. We want to rightly divide the Word of God. Part of what happens in today's world is that we just don't spend enough time in God's Word to understand it. And we say things so quickly like, I don't understand it. There's a lot of things right now that I don't understand, but I don't stay there. And so what I have is a mind to study, is a mind to understand, but I want to have a humble heart. If we don't have a humble heart, we truly will not receive the revelation of God's word. Religious mindsets get in the way. Again, I remind you, they were watching Jesus to see what he would do. They wanted him to break the rules. That's what a religious mindset is like. A religious mindset is just looking to jump on someone. It's looking to criticize someone. It's looking to say what is wrong. Now, do we want to have clear biblical understanding so that we can identify false? Absolutely. But if that's all that we do, there usually is something wrong with our personality. If we're quick just to judge, if we're quick to criticize, if we're not like 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 5 says, that we examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. Examine prophecies. We examine teaching. We examine activities. And we hold fast to that which is good. God is not issuing a, um, issuing a, a badge for each one of us to be watchdogs in the kingdom of God. I don't even understand why those ministries exist. I think that local churches can just study the Word of God and they can discern what is false and they apprehend what is truth. That's what we're called to do. But there's so many ministries today and so many people today that have employed themselves in the work of just identifying the false. I want to identify the truth. And what we have to do in order to do that is also learn how to identify the false. But we're not experts in identifying the false. We're experts in identifying the truth. And believe me, there is a difference. And so what I want to encourage us to do is lay hold of the truth with humble hearts and resist 
a religious mindset to always see what is wrong. We want to identify the false because we are so going after what is true, not like what we see here in the religious leaders that are seeking to accuse Jesus. Number two, we must regularly examine our traditions. We read here in G- in verse four where Jesus asks the question after asking the man to come forward, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? The oral law had become their law. Jesus had never broke the law, nor did he diminish it whatsoever. Jesus is the only one that held the law. Jesus is the only one that lived a sinless, righteous life according to the law. However, they thought they did, but they actually adhered to their own law. And what I'm trying to say here is is that there are times, even in our culture, so here we have Jews practicing Judaism, we have Jews adhering to the law, And that's right for them to do. We don't want to diminish that. But they had moved away from what the intention of the law was. They had moved away from the humility that they needed to have as those who were followers of Yahweh and really teachers of the law. They were the ones that represented God to the people. They represented God's word to the people. And so clearly Jesus was angry and he asked the question, Is it right on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Here Jesus is preparing to heal and they're plotting to kill. What is the difference? Well, they're not willing to examine their traditions. They can see the law manifested in front of them to save, to heal. And Jesus had no problem interpreting what it meant to do right and righteousness on the Sabbath. Jesus knew exactly what that was, and he is also demonstrating his sovereignty and that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So clearly he has no issue with this whatsoever. But what you find is there are times where tradition will trump truth. Tradition will override the truth. It happened to them, but it also happens to us. And we want to be very careful because what will happen is that where we put tradition in place of truth, we will find that a religious mindset will start to cultivate and we will see other people accordingly. And instead of having compassion on people, instead of loving people, instead of seeking to reach people, we will build up these walls, these barriers of distance, and we will judge who's right and who's wrong instead of who do we reach for the lo- in, in the love of God for the purposes of Jesus. This is something we've got to be very mindful of. There are traditions that you have. There are traditions that I have. They happen over a period of time. Some of them are good. They're not bad. But are they truth? Sometimes we have to deny our traditions in order to adhere to truth. And the way we do that is we examine them regularly. And so Jesus asked this question to help them examine whether or not what they're thinking in their minds is the truth or not. And clearly, you know what it says? It says they said nothing. Why? They weren't going to debate Jesus on this one. They have all of these rules, and these rules are in the balance. And Jesus here is looking at a man with compassion who has a withered hand, and it says that he got angry at the hardness of the hearts of those that could no longer see what Jesus sees, to love God and to love your neighbor. They couldn't see that anymore. That's what tradition can do. And friend, I want you to hear me when I say this. Tradition has the power to override the truth. That's why we have to adhere to the holy word of God. We have to regularly 
read the Word of God. We have to regularly study the Word of God. And we don't have some biblical elitism, some mindset that says, what I know is already superior knowledge to everyone and everything. What we want to do is have humble minds, humble hearts, not saying we don't know anything. I'm just saying we want to build our lives consistently, continually on God's Word. You hear me all the time. Anybody that listens to me knows my heart, my passion is to get people into God's Word. My heart, my passion is to get people to be filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit, to be on mission with Jesus, to run after the things of God, is to see what Jesus sees, is to do what Jesus did. That is my heart. And I believe there are things that get in the way of us being able to do that. And this is one of them. I've seen it again and again, and I would be tempted by this myself. This is something that I have to understand always. This is something that I have to come back to continually. Why? Because traditions crop up in all kinds of seasons of our life. We have to develop boundaries. We have to develop rules. We have to develop interpretation and understanding about how we apply the Word of God in our lives. And so over a period of time, I've had certain rules and restrictions and things that worked for that season. They helped me to understand God's Word and implement it in my life. But then it got confronted is this really the truth? Is this really like some standard by which I need to see other people? A filter, glasses, so to speak, that I look through and I see other people? No, it was just the way that God called me to deal with things in my own life. But then he constantly upgrades that in my life as well. well the last thing I want to share with you is this. God is always inviting us into faith. And we see this in verse 3, we see this also in verse 5, and I just want to remind you of this. I've already said it, but I want to bring it up as an important point for us, is that there is sometimes a mindset that says God's going to do what God's going to do. That's, that's sort of the, a version of God's sovereignty. Here's the thing. God is sovereign. God has all power and authority. Of course He does. All of us understand that. All of us believe that. God is God, and we have this awe of God. We realize that he's big and he's great and he's majestic and he's powerful and he's all of that. And constantly we're getting that upgrade to understand just how great and powerful and awesome is our God. But the reality is, is that he works with us. I don't understand that. It's a mystery to me how, how this God that is so great and so majestic has stooped so low in working with humanity, his creation. It's this mystery. It's like David would say, what is man that you are mindful of him? I have no idea how to answer that except to say that God loves you. God loves me. He loves us. How do, how do we know that? Because Jesus came as God the Son and he walked among us. He lived with us. He was tempted in all things. Therefore, he could sympathize with us in our weakness and yet he resisted to the point of death. He never gave in to sin or temptation whatsoever. He has so much compassion and empathy for each one of us. And here we see that God works with us. God invites us into faith. He invites us into believing Him. He doesn't just work on our behalf. He works with us, not just for us. Why is that important? Because whatever we're believing God for, we must realize that he is inviting us to participate. There is something about our response in this mysterious working of God that is very important to him. I see it all over the Gospels. I see it all over the book of Acts, all over the word of God. He gives a command and he expects his people to respond. He speaks to his people and he wants us to come to him. 
This is what we're talking about. Jesus works with us and not just for us. And this is a profound principle. I remember when I had a revelation about healing and that it says this about Jesus time and time again. It says, all who came to him were healed. It says, all who came to him were healed. And I remember thinking about that. Wow. He healed everyone who came to him. He healed every affliction and every disease. But this little verse, who came to him? He didn't heal everyone that was sick. He healed all who came to him. There were many that were sick in John chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda, and yet he approached only one person, and he asked this question, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? He didn't approach anybody else. We don't know if he healed anybody else there, but what we do know is Jesus only approached one person. But what we read is when others approached him, he ministered to them. That was profound. And so we see again and again in the scriptures, like we see in James chapter 5, and uh, the apostle James, he actually references this principle. He says, if anyone is sick, go to the elders. I've taught this principle on healing, but I had a revelation where I saw all of these different passages in just one shot in my mind. And James says, if any one of you is sick, go to the elders. And the elders then have a responsibility to lay their hands on the sick. The sick person, confess your sins. And as we pray the prayer of faith, the sick will be made well. So we just want to practice the Bible. It says all who came to Jesus... It says, if anybody is sick, go to the elders. There is this participation of faith. Now, would you, if you ask me, is it always about your faith? No, it's not always about your faith. But your faith is important. So sometimes people actually diminish faith in the process of receiving from God. And what I won't do is diminish faith. God gives us faith. I believe faith is what he gifts to us. He gives each one a measure of faith. Now, we can put faith in ourselves, we can put faith in other people, we can put faith in the culture, we can put faith in everything else but God. I think God heals, if we want to talk about healing, He heals through human hands. Absolutely. So if we submit ourselves to surgery or medication or anything like that, ultimately we want to trust God in that, not trust God and not that. I'm saying no matter what it is that we're doing, we want to trust God through that and in that. We want to look to him, but we want to practice the scriptures. We want to believe in God. We want to put our faith in Him. No matter what route that we're taking in life, we constantly have to put our faith in Him and in His Word. So what are we talking about today? We read this story about Jesus healing a man who has a withered hand. We read this story about Jesus confronting the religious mindset. There's several principles that we read about in here, but I'm just talking to you about religious mindsets see the wrong thing. So we want to move away from that. We want to move away, or we want to regularly examine our tradition. And what do we want? We want a biblical mindset. We want to have a humble heart when we come to God's Word. We want to examine tradition because it's Scripture. It's truth over tradition. And so we want to examine those things that can get in the way because we don't want to have the mindset that we read about in the Pharisees in the time where Jesus was on the earth because we constantly see that Jesus is confronting them, seeking to really, I believe, help them understand the intention of the law. But we also want to understand that God is always inviting us into faith. And the man who had the withered hand, he says, come forward. Well, he had to do that, didn't he? He said, stretch out your hand. He had to do that, didn't he? All over scripture, he's saying things, stretch out your hand, come forward, do this, go to the elders. It's, there's a participation that we have 
to place our faith in God and in His Holy Word. And I want to encourage you to do that. That's why I want you to be in the Word. That's why not only do we want to, I'm asking you to participate in the daily Word with me, but I pray to God that you and I have a daily Word with Him. That's what it's all about. I want you to go ahead and pray with me today as we close the Word of God and ask for Him to work in our hearts and in our homes and our lives as we go out and do whatever it is today that we're supposed to do. We do it unto Him. Amen? Father, we thank You today for Your Word, and we do pray into this that we've read, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to discern and evaluate our own mindsets to make sure and ensure that we are walking with You and we are walking in the truth. You are well pleased when we walk in the truth and we walk out the truth. We live a life according to the truth. Help us, Lord, to examine any traditions that we've developed that might be in the way of what you want to do. We also pray that you would continually fill us with the Holy Spirit. And as you invite us into places of faith to believe you in greater ways, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take those steps. Give us the grace to walk out what your word says. I pray that you would encourage us today. Give us divine appointments that we can meet people and encourage them in, in, in you. Lead them to Christ encourage them about who you are, and speak about Jesus. I pray that we would be gospel advocates all throughout today, no matter where we are, no matter who we talk to. We thank you for your love over us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.